guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 178. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we do have a Q&A episode for you. So Jack, in order to answer this first question, I just want you to imagine something for a moment. You have no interest in being a lifesaver. And the thought of having voluptuous muscular quads and hamstrings, that doesn't appeal to you in the slightest. Because we all know that, you know, thick thighs, they do indeed save lives. But I want you to imagine that you're not interested in that. You are simply interested in growing your buttocks. So, (laughs) Jack, how can you grow your butt without your thighs blowing out? Quote the question. <laughs> yeah, so I we can pretty much apply this to any other muscle group. Like how do you target your back, for example, without growing your arms or your delts? Or how do you grow your chest, for example, without biasing your delts excessively and stuff like that? So, which is, yeah, I'm sure many people tailor that towards their own training programming. And in the case of the glutes, it's just about prioritizing the movements that you want to execute and incorporate into your program that isn't going to bias your quads and hamstrings. And a lot of the time, I mean, the the basic principle of this is like essentially exercise selection and then also how you're actually performing that movement. For example, you could do a quad bias squat or you could do a glute bias squat. Mm. And I think that's one of the most important factors for for people growing muscle in general is ensuring that the way in which they're executing a movement actually matches their physique related goals. Mm, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So what sort of exercises then would you be programming for someone who really just wants to grow their butt without really having their hamstrings and quads come to the party? So I think we have a few different exercise genres, I would say. So we have the hip hinge motion of glute work, which is going to be stuff like your hip thrust, your Romanian deadlift, even your traditional deadlift or like deadlift. I would definitely say the Romanian deadlift is is best in this situation and, and hip thrust as well. Those would probably be my top two from a hip hinge perspective. Maybe even something like a, a single leg Romanian deadlift, if depending on the individual. Mm. And then we also have the lunge slash push based patterns. So that would be something like a, a high foot position leg press. It would be something like a Bulgarian split squat, be something like a, a, like a long stance lunge. It could be a glute biased squat as well. Uh, or, and again, like a single leg press too with a high foot position. So there's a lot of stuff from that perspective as well. And it will target a different area of the glutes compared to the hip hinge motions. And then we have the kind of the third plane, which is basically like abduction. So machine abduction, single leg abductions. I think personally, my preference is usually, I think single leg abductions is best, I think, just because when you're doing a machine-based abduction, it can be hard to get full range of motion. And sometimes people just don't really fit the machine very well. Mm. Or they're just, their booty is too strong. Like Mm. in your case where, you know, you're maxing out and I've got a number of girls on our team where they're just maxing out hip abduction machines. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those are awesome things that you just pointed out. And it kind of brings me back to thinking about Brett Contreras, 
also known as the glute guy, which I'm sure many of you guys are aware of if you're just interested in training in general. Great guy over on Instagram, but he's the one who really pioneered the barbell hip thrust to begin with. But Brett Contreras, he talks about in his training principles, this rule of thirds. And the rule of thirds when it comes to glute training is that you do want to be splitting up your exercise selection into three different planes of motion. So like you touched on, you have your vertical plane where you've got different exercises that are training the glutes more in the lengthened position. So you've got things like your RDLs and your squats and your lunges. Then you have the horizontal plane where you're training your glutes in the shortened position. And those are things like your barbell hip thrusts, your glute bias back extensions, your reverse hypers, and then the lateral plane where you're doing things like abduction work. So trying to look at your program as a whole, if you do want well-rounded glutes from the back and you're, you know, showing off two little planets back there, you do want to be targeting your glutes from every single angle because trying to split your exercise selection into those three divisions really will help to ensure that you are hypertrophying all fibers of the glutes on the upper shelf, you know, the lower fibers of the glutes, the lateral fibers, etc. But even the rule of thirds comes back to as well in terms of training intensity. Like you could be approaching failure for some lifts, you could be going just shy of failure for some lifts, and for other lifts, you really don't want to be going anywhere near failure. Similar to, you know, going like heavy, medium, and light, etc., for different movements. But if I think about someone who really just wants to target just their glutes and purely isolate them without their quads and hamstrings really coming to the party, I would probably bias more exercises that are working the glutes in that shortened horizontal position and then also in the lateral plane as well. So that would be things like hip thrust variations, uh, glute bias, back extensions, reverse hypers, frog pumps, and then cable hip abductions, machine hip abductions. You could do banded crab walks, all of those different things. Mm. A lot of which though aren't really that great. Like for example, the frog pumps. <laughs> ah, I don't know, man. Don't, don't knock it till you try it. Frog pumps. I'm they... sure you get a good burn and you get a good <laughs> sensation, but I'm not, I'm personally not prescribing <laughs> frog pumps for glute growth. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, back in the COVID days when we were writing home workouts, I'm not going to lie. I was programming a few people, some frog mm. pumps because there's not much else to do, but it is one of those things where you have to do a buttload of reps, pardon the pun. But the thing about that though is that yes, okay, you're gonna be able to just isolate your glutes, but you have to think about if you are almost neglecting those exercises that really work the glutes in the lengthened position where you're doing your things like your Bulgarian split squats, your lunges, your RDLs, your deep squats, you are then going to sacrifice some hypertrophy in those lower fibers of the glutes. So you quote unquote, arguably aren't necessarily gonna have really, really well-developed, all-rounded glutes, especially when you lean down. And as a coach who really kind of specializes in this space, working with females, you know, studying different divisions and girls who are getting highly conditioned and being very competitive on stage, you can tell the ones that actually have been neglecting those exercises that really challenge them in the lengthened position of their glute work. And 
Unfortunately, it actually leads to a lack of development in their glutes and their rear shots just aren't as impressive. And you can kind of tell the girls, like if you actually look at a girl's lined up on an IFBB stage and you look at their butts, you can tell the girls that primarily just do hip thrusts and the girls that do hip thrusts and they do their Bulgarians and their lunges and their deep squats because it really helps to develop those lower fibers and the tie-in where you really see that glute kind of like veeing down into the hamstring, which is such a beautiful look, but it's only built through hard work and actually doing those certain exercises. So I really wouldn't encourage someone to kind of neglect exercises in any sense. And yes, you know, if you're performing them in a certain way, of course you are going to recruit hamstrings. You are going to recruit quads in some of these movements, but why would you fear that anyway? <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think the danger of just exclusively working glutes also is that you potentially get imbalances as well mm. that can lead to other issues. And we haven't really spoken about the nutrition front as well, but Obviously, this is an anonymous question, so we have no idea who asked this. Mm. And we have to acknowledge that, like, obviously, a calorie surplus is going to be the most ideal environment for growing any sort of muscle, whether it's the glutes or not. So that would be ideally something you coincide with your glute-specific programming. Mm. And also, someone's body fat storage as well. Like, you might potentially just store more body fat in your quads and hamstrings less on your glutes therefore your thighs might blow up so to speak whereas your glutes might stay relatively similar because mm. like realistically someone's proclivity for muscle growth i don't think is unless you are very very genetically blessed for the quads and hamstrings like are you really growing muscle that quickly that it's blowing up like i mean i wish that was me but oh i'm with you <laughs> <laughs> but i i do sort of raise my eyebrows a little bit um in when someone expresses a, mm. a statement like that. Absolutely. And you have to think about too, that building muscle, it's all an illusion as well. So generally people actually start training a certain muscle group when even they might be a little bit hesitant. They're like, Oh, you know, I don't necessarily want to train my legs because I've already got quote unquote big legs. You might actually be surprised that when you start doing more resistance training, that it actually creates the illusion that you have more dare do I say toned legs, or you just see more details and more muscular definition in your legs. And it actually creates the illusion that they're a little bit more petite and a little bit slimmer if you actually have more muscle mass. And I think a lot of people are actually a bit disheartened when they're like, yeah, you know, I kind of disregard these certain exercises because I don't want to grow my quads or I don't want to grow my hamstrings because they're already big enough in absolute terms. But then when they attempt to go through a really gnarly diet and they start stripping off body fat, it can actually be a bit of a rude awakening of like, damn, you know, I actually don't have very impressive quads. I probably should have been training them. Mm -hmm. And it makes dieting so much harder. It is actually so much more difficult to actually get a good look in a certain body part and also strip off all of that body fat if you don't at least have some sort of muscle lying underneath it's uh it is very very difficult yeah and it's the same for guys as well like someone might store a lot of body fat on their arms mm -hmm. and they might be really happy with their arms and maybe not train them as much because of that and they're kind of focusing on the chest and the back maybe 
And then when they diet down, they kind of lose all the body fat from their arms and maybe their delts too. And they kind of wish they didn't slack at the end of the sessions, mm-hmm. which I guess is rare for guys because guys will usually train their arms more than anywhere else. <laughs> but could even be the legs for guys. Like maybe they store a lot of body fat on the legs, not much on their abs. So they've got thick legs when they've at a slightly higher body fat. And mm. when they diet down, they've got chicken legs, unfortunately. Yeah. So you heard it here first. Try not to neglect muscle groups. And I think actually a pretty good way of knowing of, hey, do I actually have a good amount of muscle mass on this body part is test your strength. Mm. You know, if you are under the impression that, you know, you've got enormous quads, but you can't even back squat 30 kilos. Uh, <laughs> do you really have a lot of muscle mass on your like squats? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> but no, what I'm trying to get at is like if someone, and if they even became quite accustomed to a movement pattern too, mm. or let's say get someone on a leg press and try to get them to go really, really hard on it. If they can't really press that impressive of weight despite the size of a limb, then yeah, you could argue, yeah, you probably just disproportionately hold a little bit more body fat in this area. Mm. Yeah, so test your strength before you just go neglecting exercises. But I think that's definitely a principle that I employ a lot from Brett Contreras's, you know, rule of thirds is that whenever I'm programming for a female and I do want her to have a really nice butt, and I'd like to think a lot of the girls on our team, they do have really, really nice butts. Whenever I'm programming, and, <laughs> and even the guys, mm. their peaches are growing. <laughs> You've got a really nice butt. Thanks. Um, my pleasure. Uh, credit where it's due. But but <laughs> it is really important to obviously just apply, you know, those different principles of train the glutes in the lengthened position, train them in the shortened position, do some abduction work, and uh, yeah, you will be on your way to growing a super nice peach. How good. How good. All right, Jack, this next question. What did you eat for breakfast? Well, my breakfast has looked very similar for quite a long time. And it used to be solid food, now it's now it's not. Now it's it's basically the same meal, but I blend it up. And the reason I've stuck with it for so long, one, it's it's fairly nutritionally complete. Two, my daily intake of food is nutritionally complete as well. Like there's always the argument of having more di- dietary diversity, which I do occasionally. But at this phase for me, I think there are certainly pros of bodybuilding and there are cons of bodybuilding as well. Like I'm not, I don't think we've ever said that bodybuilding is the healthiest thing on the planet because mm. it's not. And my, I've talked about this in one recent episode, but yeah, basically my food focus is very, very low at the moment. My appetite is very, very low. Uh, fortunately, only for like another two weeks because I'll be mini cutting soon, which I'm looking forward to. And I was actually thinking about that the other day. <laughs> you know how people, when they're dieting, they say like, oh, I'm having a diet break. Mm. In a sense, it's almost like you're you're hoping that you get a bit of a diet break because you've yeah. obviously follow a diet or a dietary pattern, but you just want a bit of a break from it. In a sense, mm. like you don't want to eat so much. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm having a diet break, but it's literally a diet. It's not a break <laughs> from a diet. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it could go twofold. <laughs> mm. So yeah, basically my breakfast is usually, and I put this on my story the other day as well, but it's basically some Milo cereal. It's a piece of fruit. Today I had a banana. It's usually a banana at the moment just because it's higher carb compared to other ones and it blends nicely. And it's also some honey, 
so about I'll put the quantities as well. So it's like about 100 grams of Milo cereal, roughly about 125 grams of banana, 30 grams of honey, just for some additional carbohydrates. So I don't have to spend more on Milo cereal. Basically, 100 grams is already quite a lot. And then I have 20 grams of pepitas, which is basically a type of seed from pumpkins. And then a cup of low fat milk and some whey protein isolate. And then add some extra water to that and blend it up and drink it. Delicious. So I guess the question is more so what did you eat for breakfast? It's more what did you drink for breakfast? Yes. (laughs) What did you eat? Oh, well, I'm kind of the same as you in the sense that like my breakfast has not changed for a very, very long time. I think that I've But that's where the likeness ends, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's about as similar as it gets. Other than we both have a banana at breakfast time. (laughs) But I've always had the same rendition of this breakfast, I think going all the way back to like 2017, because I just love it so much. And, you know, kind of the basis of it is an egg white omelet with some cheese some sort of oat or cream of wheat concoction and then some fruit on the side and then depending on my energy requirements i just manipulate the portion sizes mainly of the oats and the cream of wheat and the fruit and then bob's your uncle i'm hitting my macros and my you know calorie requirements for that meal but essentially i just blend some egg white powder i purchase egg white powder instead of the liquid egg whites because per gram of protein, it is significantly cheaper, like over twice as cheap compared to the equivalent amount of protein. Mm. And I just- There are cons though, aren't there? There are cons? Yeah. Uh, Probably just in jack size because powder is really messy and we- Well, not just that. I mean, the average person, like you're definitely an elite Oh, wow. (laughs) You can just leave it there. You're you're definitely just elite. Now we're ending the podcast. (laughs) Thanks, my man. I'm kidding. <laughs> Most people, I think, would they do struggle initially to make egg whites when using powdered format. Mm, only because they don't listen to my instruction oh. when I clearly say, do not whisk this with a fork. Or don't shake it. <laughs> or don't shake it. Just <laughs> blend it thoroughly with a stick blender so it gets the proper consistency, then pour it in a hot pan. People um, need to watch your uh, tut- tutorial on YouTube. That's that's right. Go check out the Bodybuilding Dietitians on YouTube. But either way, I use egg white powder. I make an egg white omelet, and then I melt a little bit of cheese on there, usually about 15 grams. And then I just spice it up with salt, pepper, chili flakes, smoky paprika. I dollop some salsa on there. And then on the side, depending on, again, whether I'm dieting, whether I'm at maintenance and a surplus, I usually have some sort of cocoa-based oats or wholemeal flour. Right now, my energy requirements are quite high, so I'm having both. I don't even know what to call this thing. I think it should be called like complex carb batter, chocolatey complex carb batter. But right now I'm just blending 50 grams of oats, 100 grams of wholemeal flour, 15 grams of raw cocoa, a little bit of sweetener, and some well, that cinnamon. just automatically now makes it bad. <laughs> because I'm using little saccharin tablets. Mm. <laughs> and then I blend a banana in there. And then I microwave that. And I blend that with like 700 milliliters of water. And then on the side, I just make up the remaining carbohydrates with some fruit that I've bought at the discount fruit barn that week. So this week right now I'm having some green grapes, I'm having a plum, and I'm having an orange on the side. So like when I look at it from a bird's eye view, I'm like, damn, this is actually decently high food volume. 
But I was thinking about this the other day because the macros from my breakfast generally come out to be about 15 grams of fat, about like 50 grams of protein, and anywhere in the realm of like 160 to 170 grams of carbs. So it's a decent carb volume in particular. And I recognize I'm like, okay, cool. If I didn't want to have such high volume, particularly what's just kind of looked like from the fruit, just add less water to your cake and then just have more flour. But then on the flip side, one, if I'm trying to get like 170 grams from just wholemeal flour, that's nearing 300 grams of flour. Like that's a lot of flour. And like, I think for me, you get flour toxicity. (laughs) No, you can't. But I think that you could get flour flavor fatigue. Like what entices me to eat more food is if I'm like, cool, that's a good portion size, but like, I want to keep eating more if I can actually have different flavors. So yeah, that's why I personally like, okay, that's enough. And then Because I think that if I just had the cake, I'm like, I don't know, almost psychologically, I'd be like flipped, nearing on 300 grams of flour. Like this is a lot. So I'd rather just have a hundred grams, blend it with some banana and some oats and some cocoa. And then on the side, have a bit more fruit. So Mm, hopefully the listeners have followed you there. (laughs) Anyway. um, Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? That's what I'm having for breakfast lately. But I take advantage of it though. Cause like, especially in the improvement season, I love fruit. So like at breakfast time, if I can have like four servings of fruit, essentially, it's really nice. That's 600 grams of fruit. Well, yeah, I have nearing like a hundred and sometimes 50 grams of banana. And then about 200 grams of an orange, about 120 grams of grape, and then about 150 grams of a plum. So what is that? That's 300, that's 500. Uh, that's 620. Nice. Yeah. It's quite a bit of fruit, but I love it, you know, but then I also, I don't mind as well when I go into a dieting phase, if I just strip all that back and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm just going to have just a hundred grams of cream of wheat or a hundred grams of oats, still my egg on the side. And then maybe just one orange, like it just kind of changes and I'm not too fussed about it. Yeah. But that's our breakfast. I'd argue too. That's probably more nutritionally adequate than just having a buttload of flour yeah yeah so get your fruit in (laughs) that's why i have milo cereal instead of flour (laughs) i think you and i are under this argument right because technically milo is it healthier because it's so fortified with different nutrients yeah it is healthier (laughs) okay well i have plenty of flour as well Mm. yeah well in your other shakes you even blend a bit of flour into the shakes Mm. yeah i have about 400 grams of flour a day at the Mm. moment yeah, well, yeah, that's beating me. I'm yeah. only at like 250. Yeah, well, I'm also on like double your carbs. So. That is true. All right. Well, anyway, that's what we had for breakfast. <laughs> Jack, moving on to this next question. How do you know which bodybuilding season to compete in? Should you compete at the start of the year or the end? So I think it really mainly depends on the individual as opposed to worrying too much about the federation or federations because... Obviously, a lot of our listeners are in Australia, but some are in the US. And in the US, it really depends even more so than Australia. I think the biggest thing in terms of the seasons is that usually they have the more fancy and not prestigious isn't the right word, but the national or international shows are usually held in season B. So with ICN, they have nationals, obviously, or I don't know, Jason likes me to call it something a little bit different, which I can't remember, like the Australian Championships or something. Mm -hmm. I always call it nationals because I played team sports growing up. 
and Australian titles. Yes, that's right. So Australian titles will be held at each season and pretty much the same with the other federations as well. But if you want to go overseas and maybe compete at WMBF Worlds or you want to compete at the IMBA Natural Olympia or you want to do maybe a international ICN show, then those are usually held towards the end of the year in mm. like October, maybe even November. But I would say, again, what's more important is your lifestyle. And like, if you know you've got a really hectic end of the year and you've got the start of the year more free, then it makes sense to probably compete when you're going to be able to give prep your best shot. Mm. Yeah, so your lifestyle. But I would even argue one up on top of that is when are you going to be able to bring your best physique to stage? You know, in terms of obviously your muscularity, like, do you need more time? That's also another thing too. Yeah. Assuming the person's like deciding on season A will be this year or next year, but like, I'm, I'm just speaking sort of hypothetically in general. Mm, yeah. So yeah. But what's going to fit in best with your life and also what's going to guarantee that you look the best too. But I guess you could also argue as well is that what's probably going to bring the best look is obviously you having the most, you know, stress-free, cruisy prep, if that even exists, unless you're literally like a professional bodybuilder who's getting paid to do this. <laughs> but, you know, the, the least sort of big things happening. So, you know, some people have big work events where they need to go away for like a whole week to a conference, right? And that involves travel, that involves different types of food. Some people, their best friend might be getting married, you know, and you throw in a hen's night in there and the whole wedding weekend sort of thing. Some other people, they might be getting married during a prep. And then, you know, it, each to their own, but like some people, they really prefer to do season B because they don't have to do season A and kind of diet over that Christmas, New Year's period where some people, if they are quite social, that can be quite challenging. But mm. you just kind of have to think about it, obviously long-term and say, okay, I'm planning to compete in bodybuilding in future here in Australia. There are two main seasons. Season A generally runs throughout April and May. And then if you want to start your prep around six months prior, you're usually starting prep in the realm of around October, the year prior. If you want to do season B, then those shows generally run over September and October. And if you want to start your prep about six months prior, you usually start prep somewhere like mid-March to early April, depending on which state you're in and which show. So you kind of have to look at the show. You've got to look at the six months prior to that factor in a pre-prep phase as well and be like, okay, looking at my calendar from abroad, like which one is actually going to give me, you know, the best opportunity so that I can truly give this my all. Mm. We've both done only season A's. Mm. Yeah. For context. And originally I was going to do season B of 2024 with you, but this past year when <laughs> there's a few reasons I've obviously chosen to do season A again, but because I went through like, you well, know, it's a good example for the listeners. Yeah. Oh, why I've decided. Yeah. Well, the reason why I decide personal, I have a few different reasons for why I decided to do season A again. I think one of the big things is just work wise is that I'm forecasting to have quite a large team for season B of 2024 next year. And as a coach, it is so important to me that 
I am there for my clients as their coach on game day. Like, I don't want to be one competing against my clients because I feel like I would be robbing them of the coaching experience. Like, I don't want to be backstage pumping up next to someone. I want to be backstage with someone helping them pump up, you know, giving them Gatorade, taking photos, running back and forth between the crowd. Like, I want to be there for them as their coach that day. So that's so important to me to be able to provide a client with that experience. But also like this next prep, it matters so much to me so that in a sense, because it's a three year gap I'm taking away from the stage from 2021 to 2024, I just really in a way wanna be a little bit selfish and I just want to be able to solely just focus on what I want to do and what I want to achieve on those show days for myself as well. So that's a bit of a reason why I'm choosing you. And the climate. Yes, (laughs) getting to that too. (laughs) So the climate plays a huge role in it as well. And I'm sure this would play a huge role for a lot of other people too, because boy, like dieting through the cold months, like- Imagine, I think Americans are just shaking their head now. (laughs) Australians complaining about 19 degrees Celsius days. (laughs) For real though. Even when the sun is out. But I'm telling you, at least when, especially when you're lean, like you just feel cold. Even when you prep for season A and it's nearing on like April and May, you know, and like you just don't have much body fat on your frame and you're just very metabolically adapted. Boy, do you feel a wind chill. <laughs> I've never really had that issue. That is a lie. <laughs> like I, sure, I, I feel the cold more, but then I chuck on a sweater and then it's fine. Like, yeah, I, I'm sure you do feel it. Like I'm not discrediting it, but enough, I, it would never be enough for me to like schedule my prep around it. Mm. Yeah. Obviously not saying you're wrong. It's just interesting how mm. people are different. Yeah. Well, I like feeling warm and I also genuinely think I'm a little bit happier in the summer months as well. And, uh, we all know that having a low caloric intake for a chronic period of time, it can play on your mood a little bit. Even for someone like myself, who I'm pretty, you know, upbeat and chirpy. I have my days where, you know, I'm just feeling a little bit, you know, just a little bit sad. And I think that if there's longer, warmer days for that period, for the most part, I think that I'll probably be a little bit happier as well. I also think about like the types of food that you want to gravitate toward too, especially as a female who has to get on pretty damn low calories. Like if you're trying to feel satiated from meals, it is a lot nicer to kind of seek out those sort of foods, like blending some ice with some low calorie berries and some protein as like a bit of a smoothie or some nice cream. That's a lot more enjoyable to eat and it's a lot more refreshing in the summer months compared to if you want to have that sort of higher volume food option in the winter, but like you have to prepare yourself for it by putting on like track pants, two pairs of socks, three sweaters and a toque. And you're like about to endure this thing and freeze to your bones, but you're doing it so you can just have a few extra mouthfuls of food. Like there's that trade off too with the calorie side of things. Mm. (laughs) I even remember in our very first season of 2018 season A, you got on the nice cream train and that's when we- I got on it last time as well. Yeah, you did. But in um, in 2018, I remember you'd have nice cream where you'd blend 500 grams of raspberries with your mm. casein in that big food processor. But it was, it was May and you were cold, my friend. And I remember you preparing yourself for it. You were that person with the socks and the pants and the sweaters and the little beanie. And you were there with your little spoon saying, it's so worth it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and the heat pack as well. And, oh, you can't forget the heat pack. Yes. If you're going to have nice cream on a cold day, you have to put a heat pack on. You you alternate between the belly and the lower back. Mm. <laughs> or, or sometimes, and then you take one of the hand that's not eating the nice cream with, and you put that on the heat pack. <laughs> There's just so much going on. <laughs> that's a big reason as well i think the longer days the warmer months even like just being able to like get a pump and like feeling vascular as well um that's another thing too so i think the weather plays a huge role in it mm. Mm. what about taking check-in photos man like having to strip down to your underwear and pose and take check-in photos on a cold day again like it's not very pleasant at least I'm speaking about people here in Australia because in the US, like I, I grew up in Canada and you walk into any house and like it's well insulated, it's nice and toasty, like regardless of like the time of the year, but especially in the winter time here in Australia, like everything is built so that it's cooler generally. So like, you know, you've got cold air coming up through floorboards and you've got wide open windows. So some mornings here, like it, even in Queensland, like it does get like four degrees sometimes in the winter. It's cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it does get, yeah, the, the inside of the house is probably colder than what mm. it is in the US. It's, unless people use heaters, but we don't use heaters in Australia. I mean, we personally don't. We did actually buy a little heater uh, for our last prep member. We never used it. But mm. <laughs> must have been a prep. It was a, it was a great prep idea. But actually, I'm... we did use it a couple times. Uh, yeah. not but you've used it here. Here, but we we took it to a show. Mm. <laughs> we took it to the Sunshine Coast show. We t bought this cheap little heater, and we're like, oh yeah, we're gonna sit next to this, so we're nice and warm, and so that we you know we can actually um, warm up prior to pumping up for stage sort of thing. Yeah, great prep idea, not very practical, plugging in a Kmart heater at, at backstage at a show. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the idea was worthwhile. Yeah, but okay, I guess those are a few, I guess people can kind of take a few of those points and say, hmm, would that apply to me, perhaps? Uh, but yeah, I think it's really just more so about the timing. So if you actually look at your calendar and you're like, okay, I'm about to go hard on a goal that's very, very important to me and I need to be on the ball every single day for at least six months straight, at what point of the year is that gonna be the most feasible? Is it best to aim for season A or is it best to aim for season B? I think there's uh, pros and cons to both, but I don't think you or I are, are really the type of people to get too fussed about Ooh, I really want to be lean for summer or something like that. Like, no, nah. Like, I think that really the lo the longer you're doing this, I'm a big advocate for like you should feel confident and comfortable in every body composition at every single phase. Otherwise, like, I don't know. Like, you're just you're you're not doing it right. You know, we put way too much effort and passion into this lifestyle to not be walking around in a body that like we're proud of every day. Mm. Yeah, I think. There will be times when your body fat's higher, but I mean, that's, you should still feel comfortable in your body. Mm. I still, I'm at the, my highest body fat ever and I'll still go out on the beach and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm not too fussed by it. I think it might be even be just an old notion, perhaps even something from like perhaps high school or maybe even uni days, you know, cause obviously you get those long strings of holidays over particularly the summer months. So people are like, oh, you know, I want to have a more favorable body composition or something in those summer months. Cause I'll be spending more time at the beach. 
one, like, no one gives two flying flips what you look like at the beach. <laughs> Have you ever actually gone for just a walk down the beach? Do you actually, like, observe other people? Or do you actually, like, judge other people? Or are you just kind of in your own little world, just, like, cruising off, thinking about life, listening to your music, watching your dogs play? No one's actually at the beach being judgmental. I just have always thought that's so absurd. Yeah, I'm certainly not there with binoculars and my notepad <laughs> writing down. Should have shredded for summer. Yeah. <laughs> it's more so like if you if you observe anything on the beach, sometimes you're like, oh God, you know, that person, they really should have put on some more sunscreen. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually see more red skin than I do just like, you know, I look at people, I'm like, oh, that's too much skin or something. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Anyway, we're outside of our scope here, giving advice about sunscreen. (laughs) Anyway, guys, that's our really funky take on whether or not you should do season A or season B. Oh, one actual final thing I was just thinking of, Jack, is in terms of the travel. I think travel can go both ways. So for some seasons, like you alluded to, season B is generally a bigger season, larger competitor numbers, you know, semi more show opportunities as well, but there's generally a bit more travel opportunity to go overseas. But on the flip side, like that might not always appeal to some people from a financial standpoint as well. And you might actually want to look at a calendar too, and perhaps pick a season that's perhaps even a little bit more local to you because bodybuilding is such a flippin' expensive sport as it is. And when you do throw travel into the mix, even like flying up to Townsville for a show, you're paying for the show, but you're also paying for the flights, the accommodation, additional, you know, days that you're probably taking off work so that you can travel, etc. Or even like flying down to Melbourne for a nationals titles, something like that. So you, if you know, you actually want to budget, but still take advantage of a number of show opportunities, you might actually want to look at the calendar and say like, actually, I want to do this season because both of the nationals, let's say you're a bikini girl and you want to do IFBB nationals and ICN nationals, heck yeah, they're both in my state. All of the shows I'm going to be doing, they're actually all in my state. Or maybe I only have to fly somewhere once. I don't have to, you know, go to three different locations, which really can add up price-wise. So I think there's pros and cons to travel. It's a cool opportunity, but also sometimes it's just not financially feasible for everyone either. And sometimes, God, man, like you're in the depths of prep. Like it's just a little bit too much on your cognition to be planning all this travel too. It's kind of nice to just get in the car and drive there. Yeah. And I would say that mainly applies to people who aren't looking to do nationals. Like Mm. chances are, if you're looking to step things up a notch, then you probably will have to travel to some extent. Mm. Yeah. Particularly if you're a coach. Yeah, exactly. But hell, baby, claim it back on tax, (laughs) whether it's legal or not. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good way to uh, end this podcast, Jack. But we're going to finish on one question, and that is something that you learned this week. Yeah, so I learned something through, I guess, practical experience. I wanted to buy some footwear, some Crocs to be specific, mainly for fishing considering most gyms aren't allowing crocs mainly for fishing mainly for style yeah fishing and style (laughs) well the two go hand in hand not really and yeah so i went to bcf and just to try on the crocs there so i got my croc size which is 
apparently size extra extra large i was size 10 <laughs> and then i went to the crocs website because they were having a sale and apparently i was size nine there so i got size nine because that's what my foot measured out to be and yeah they came and they were too small so i gave them to tiara <laughs> And gave them to me with a bank transfer <laughs> <laughs> i did generously bank transfer you mm, i mean it would have been nice if the listeners thought though that i gave them to you for free <laughs> well it actually turns out that i haven't been donated just one pair of crocs but i'm gonna have to grow two additional feet or <laughs> i might need to start crocking around on all fours <laughs> Yeah, because I bought a second pair of Crocs because like, I thought I would be the size up and the size up was size 10, which is the ones that I wore at BCF, which fit me, but apparently those didn't fit as well. So now I've got two pairs of Crocs and like it basically cost as much as the Croc to actually return them because they were on sale. So if anyone's looking for a size 10 Croc, then more than happy to shout you a pair of Crocs. Might have to fight me for them. <laughs> they wouldn't fit you anyway. <laughs> So yeah, I think the lesson there is sometimes it's worth paying the extra penny just to, to go with the more convenient option and the one that you know is that fits. And that's why I hate buying clothing online as well. Mm, because what? It's too small? It's either too small or too big. Mm-hmm. Although usually too small. <laughs> oh man. Well, you didn't just get yourself in a pickle, you got yourself in quite the crock. Mm. But are so that I guess now that you know we've got two pairs of really shiny Crocs here at home because uh, I I still go out fishing barefoot I I actually do need to wear the Crocs out there but um I maybe I'm just literally waiting until a crab bites off my toe and then that's really gonna cement it for me to say man should have scared him off with the mm. Croc or you step on a stonefish mm. and you I mean you won't be around to wearing Crocs following that so. yeah. Although there are hospitals close by. Anyway, what did you learn this week? Well, on that topic, I did learn something interesting about shells. And um, actually kind of like a cone shell, in fact. But something about shells. Have you guys ever, you know, gone walking along the beach and you're like, wow, that's a really pretty shell. And you see a little hole in the shell. And there's a lot of necklaces and earrings and bracelets out there basically jewelry that is made from shells because they just take a piece of string they put it through that perfectly placed hole and you know you've got a really nice necklace but have you ever questioned like man what's the purpose of this hole why is this hole actually here and i learned something from the dr carl podcast where they were interviewing this marine biology specialist and he was actually talking about how the reason why there is a hole in the shell is because basically murder is going on along the seafloor and shells they have this kind of little uh this little spike that comes out of them and it's actually called a radula and this little spike it goes out of their shell and it actually penetrates other shells and then it eats the other shells and it kills them wow yeah so it actually spikes through their shell and then it's like see you later I am the alpha. 
So that's actually why you have holes in these little shells that make up really pretty earrings. But anyway, shells, they have this thing called a radula, and it comes out of them and it can spike other shells and it can kill them and eat their insides. Is it killing the shell though or the thing inside the shell? Well, it's, it's killing the organism that's within that shell. Mm. Yeah, and then maybe that's why you see some empty shells too. Or also I think that certain organisms, they will leave their shell and then go to a bigger shell. Yeah, but anyway, that, that little hole out there. But cone snails, they are freaking venomous and they can actually shoot out, out of this harpoon, they can actually shoot something out and like kill other fish and everything. It's like a neurotoxin and it can like kill it immediately, which is quite crazy. So if that's why it's actually really dangerous to um, be like <laughs> harpooned by a cone snail because they can actually kill you. Mm. Another reason to wear feet. Another reason to protect yourself to with crocs. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's that's the reason why there's little holes in shells is because, uh, you know, they're fighting to the duel down below the waves. Yes. You never know what's going on. You know, it's not always peaceful. Just like up here. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll wrap up this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed this one, don't hesitate to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And make sure if you do repost, tag myself, tag TBD, tag Tierra. And we'll catch you guys next week or the week after.